Hey, well, good morning. Really? Good morning. All right. Well, thank you. So um, if, if, if you're visiting, welcome. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, like Tina said, we are finishing 1 Samuel today. So we, as a church, we've, we've been studying in 1 Samuel since last January, actually. We took a little break during the summer, but we started last January. So it's been almost a year journey through 1 Samuel. And we will be ending it today here in chapter 31. I'm not sure what that meant, but um, was that Jake or wasn't, me. wasn't you? No, okay. I burned down Jake last week, so he, I, I deserve it if if I get anything coming back. So, you know, as we're as we're finishing this book, you know, as you already know, it's the first Sunday of Advent. We're kind of full blown into the Christmas season, and. Um, you know, most of you probably haven't read ahead on the text, but as we read the text, you'll probably think to yourself, this isn't a very Christmassy passage. And, um, and, and in a lot of ways, it's not a Christmassy passage, but um, this first Sunday of Advent is, is the Sunday where we speak about hope. And um, I think my, my hope is, is as we go through this really un-Christmas-like passage, you'll, you'll find out along with me that... that uh, this is maybe the, exactly the kind of passage that we need to look at to see what the true realities of Christmas as we anticipate like what Christ has come to do. You know, this passage is an interesting one. We saw a couple weeks ago that, 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 that King Saul, the king that the nation of Israel had chosen to, to be king over them, the king that, uh, that they had picked because they didn't want God to rule over them, so Saul is kind of this embodiment of their desire for self-rule and their desire for self-sufficiency and their desire for security and safety um, and to be like the other nations is this refrain that they kept saying when they asked for a king. We want to be like the other nations. And in fact, what, what we discovered early in the book of 1 Samuel was that their choice of Saul as a king was really an expression of their rejection of God to be king over them. In fact, that's what God told Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. He said, go ahead, Samuel. I'm going to pair. There it is. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So really this journey that we've seen in, in, the, in the Saul ruling over the nation of Israel is this picture of, of what it looks like when people reject God as their king. And in fact, what we're going to find out is, the, is that they, the people of Israel do, do get to experience what it is to be like the nations. They do get to experience what it is to um, not let God reign over them. In fact, um, and, and what we're going to see today, and this is probably why it's not a very Christmassy passage, is we're going to see just lots of death. We're going to see like death rule in Israel. In fact, um, we're going to see the fulfillment of what, uh, what God had told through like Samuel, who had come up from the grave, um, to Saul. We're going to see the fulfillment of it. Um, it's this, these words. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 28, he says, in verse 19, the Lord all, will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the land of the Philistines. We're going to see the Philistines come to rule over the nation of Israel. 
And in fact, I've entitled this week's message, um, The Philistine Gospel. Um, uh, and I told one of my daughters that over Thanksgiving. They're like, oh, what are you preaching on on Sunday? And I said, well, I'm going to be preaching on the Philistine gospel. And the Philistines, if you don't know, are like the enemies of the people of God. And they're like the enemies of God. And so my, one of my daughters, I won't mention her name, Karina, um, is <laughs> said, she's not here. She's at a church with good preaching. Um, she, uh, she says, well, Dad, like, it's catchy, even though it sounds a bit heretical. Is what her. But the reality is this: is that the the message of the defeat of Israel um, was this message of good news for the Philistines, and it's this Philistine gospel. And we'll talk about that more as we go on. The text is going to break out into two main sections. The first one is um, is that the king falls in verses 1 through 6, and then in verses 7 through 13, the kingdom captured. And if you like to take notes, those are our two big sections. But if you could just stand with me, I'll read and then pray. I'll probably just read the first six verses, then we'll pray, and then we'll get into our study together. First Samuel chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, And the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchi Shua, the sons of Saul. And the battle went heavily against Saul and the archers hit him. And he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and pierce me through with it. Lest these uncircumcised come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor bearer and his men on that day together. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word and I thank you for even its, I guess, unvarnished view of what our life apart from you looks like. And so, Father, I I just ask that you would allow me to speak this morning, that you'd empower me with your spirit to speak your word to your people, that we would all be built up, and that you would be glorified this morning. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, over the last couple chapters, we've been looking at uh, the other main character in our story, which was David. But a few chapters ago, the story had left off with King Saul, like, overlooking the armies of the Philistines, him becoming, like, terribly frightened. And that's what drove him to go speak to the necromancer and hear that message about his coming death uh, from Samuel, who had come up from the grave. And what what we have today, then, is that very next day. The very next day in Saul's life now, we just get thrown right into the battle. And it it just starts off. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. It's this picture of of just the the armies of Israel being routed before the Philistine armies. You can put the map up. There's a map here. Where those little white signs are in the middle of the map is where we're going to be focusing this morning. Um, You can zoom in on it a little bit. If we zoom in, those three sites are going to are are going to appear in our story. First, you have like you have the uh, site where Saul died on Mount Gilboa on the left there, and then you're going to see we're going to see later where Saul's corpse was impaled. We're going to see that. Merry Christmas. 
then we're going to see the site where Saul was buried. So the, keep those pictures in your mind. And, and what, what we, where we left off was the armies of Philistines were on the north side of that Jezreel Valley there in the middle. The armies of the, the Israelites were on Mount Gilboa, probably trying to hold the upper ground, the, the, the strategically superior position. The Philistine armies attacked them, and all the way up the slopes of Mount Gilboa, you had, like, the dead of the armies of Israel, like, littering the ground. The, no matter how, like, superior the, the Israelite, like, terrain was, it made no difference. They were just being killed. In fact, it, gets, it just goes on. Verse 1, it talks about the armies of Israel um, fleeing and being slain on Mount Gilboa. You know, as they're retreating up the mountain in verse 2. And, on the, and, and the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua, the sons of Saul. So here you have the sons of Saul, and we, we really only know something about Jonathan, the first one. Jonathan was David's best friend. He had, he had been nothing but like faithful to the Lord. He had been nothing but loyal to David. He had been nothing but like served his father like well. I think he's the only male in this entire book that doesn't have any like bad thing to say about him. Like Jonathan, every time he's appeared, has just been doing the right thing consistently. There's lots of women that, that were that way in the in book of 1 Samuel, but Jonathan was the only man. And yet, Jonathan and his two brothers get cut down by the Philistines. You know, if it was a movie, right? You can just imagine the drama of the, Philistine, the, the, the Israelites running, the Philistine-like hordes just coming up the, the mountain. Jonathan and his, three, his two brothers, like, holding their ground and fighting until the end and just getting hacked to death as the, as the like, whatever the dramatic music plays, right? Saul and his men keep falling back. Verse 3, and the battle went heavily against Saul. It's this, it's this picture where the whole weight of the Philistine army seemed to come bearing down on Saul and those people who were around him. It was heavy upon him. And the archers hit him and he was badly wounded. So the archers are firing into the, the as they see Saul. He can't run fast enough. The arrows of the archers catch him. He gets hit multiple times. He goes down, right? He's dying. And he says to his armor bearer, this guy that was to be with him, you know, the entire time, the guy that, the, the, the guy that had the job that David used to have. And Saul says, you know what? I don't want to be captured by these Philistines. I don't want them to pierce me through. I don't want them to make sport of me. So please kill me yourself. And the, and the armor bearer was like, it says he was greatly afraid. Like, probably for the same reason David wouldn't do it. He knew that, that God had ordained Saul to be king. And he wasn't going to lift up his hand against the Lord's anointed. That was the thing that the armor bearer had heard from David multiple times when David had the opportunity to kill Saul. So he refused to do it. So, like, just adding to the tragedy of this story, you have the armies of Israel fall. You have the sons of Jonathan fall. And then you have Saul take his own life by falling on his own sword. And then the armor bearer, like, in grief over everything that's happened, he falls on his own sword and kills himself. And then you have just this summary statement that's just really, really sad in verse 6. Thus Saul died with his three sons and his armor bearer and all of his men on that day together. 
like Saul's kind of final fellowship was with him and all the people that followed him was just one of death. Like the, it's a tragic story. Like death is reigning in Israel today. The armies of Israel are falling before their enemies today. The king of Israel is being struck down along with his sons. And like the righteous and the wicked alike. Like Jonathan was, Jonathan was nothing but righteous in the whole story. And he gets, he gets taken. Like death is ruling in Israel. You know, I think, I think we need to, like, I'm not going to make too much application of this until the end. We'll circle back around. But I do want to make one comment about Saul. You know, Saul should be a lesson for us. Because all, you know, all through the story of Saul, we saw Saul, we saw Saul, we saw Saul, say that three times fast, saw Saul. Previously, we have seen Saul. <laughs> like, he started well. well. We'll actually see that in a little bit. But then he was on this just downward spiral where he failed to, like, submit his heart to the Lord. And he continued to operate in his pride and his desire for like to, of appearances and approval of men. Like we've seen that all through the story over this last year. And even at his at his deathbed here, as like, like life is slipping out of him, his biggest concern is what? Draw your sword and pierce me through, lest these uncircumcised come and pierce me through and make sport of me. He still is only concerned about what other people think. I, the, the worst thing in Saul's mind was that he would be made sport of by their enemies. What never, what never comes out of his mouth is, is the fact that, that, God had, that, that God had been silent to him, that God had rejected him, that God, because of his pride, like, refused to like, like, allow him to remain as a king. So, and... and on his deathbed, Saul was more concerned about like, his public opinion and not being made fun of than he was about the fact that God had rejected him. You know, I think that there's a lesson for us to learn here is that Saul's heart was, was always, uh, we had seen this all through the book, was always kind of opposed to, to submitting himself to the Lord. And we often think like, oh, there's enough of, older, there's enough of us older people here I'll include myself in that. Oh, well, you know, God's got a grace. I've got some time, right? You know, with Saul, what happened with Saul here is that his heart never belonged to the Lord. It never really submitted to the Lord. And in his hour of crisis, like his heart continued to control him. And he was more concerned about public opinion than about his relationship with the Lord. You know, Samuel talked about that in 1 Samuel chapter 12 when he was talking to the nation of Israel and, and he was talking to them about their sin and making them, making them king. And he says this in 1 Samuel chapter 12. Samuel said to the people, do not fear, you have committed all this evil. But then he says this, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all of your heart. You must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver because they are futile. And Saul becomes a perfect example of that. His heart was all about his own public image. And in the hour of, and in the hour of need, it wasn't able to profit him or deliver him. And he dies this tragic death, like apart from the Lord. You know, so I think it's a warning to us. Like, don't think that, 
let me just put it in the positive. That which you allow to form and shape you is what will eventually and ultimately control you. That's what Samuel is saying. Don't turn aside from like worshiping and following the Lord with all of your heart because that cannot profit or deliver you. But Saul did that his whole life and he ended this tragic death. You know, as we get into the next section of text, uh, verses 7 through 13, I'll, I'll read, um, I won't go all the way to the end, but I'll read most of it here, starting in verse 7. And we see that the kingdom is captured. And when the men of Israel, verse 7, who were on the other side of the valley with those who were beyond the Jordan saw that, that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled and the Philistines came and lived in them. And it came about on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and they stripped off his weapons and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to their people. And they put his weapons in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. So here we have like this, we had the immediate picture of the battle. And what we see is we're going to see like kind of the immediate aftermath of the battle and the long-term effects of the battle. We'll see both of those things in here. And the first one it says is that when the people who are on the other side of the valley, apparently the, the forces of the nation of Israel had been somewhat split and there was a whole bunch of like soldiers on, on one side of the valley. And when they witnessed like the defeat of like Saul and the main like company of the of the army, they all take off running. And then all of those cities that were like in the Jordan Valley and in the Jezreel Valley and around there, when they realized that there was nobody to stop the Philistine armies because the army of Israel had been defeated and routed, they all abandoned their cities. They all went running. And then it just tells us the kind of the long-term effects is that just a really curt and brief statement, the Philistines came and lived in them. People of Israel had been driven out of their homes, out of their cities, off of their land, and they were being exiled, and the Philistines were living in their place. Goes on. As if that's not bad enough. And it came about the next day that the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa and they cut off his head and stripped off his weapons and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. This was a huge, huge victory for them. It was a military victory. It was a political victory. They expanded their territory well into the nation of Israel and took over a whole bunch of cities. And it was actually a religious victory. That's what he's getting at here. It says that they sent the good news to, the, to their idols and they put his armor in the, in the temple of uh, Ashtaroth, which is plural for, for the goddess Astarte, which I think is funny. Like Astarte is the goddess of fertility and war. Which I don't know what that says about Philistine marriage, but um, I, if you don't get the joke there, let it sit for a minute. It'll come to you. I think that's weird. Philistine, like fertility and war, but that's what, who she was. And we find out actually in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 10, in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 10, we're not told it here, but they took Saul's head and they placed it in the temple of Dagon. And it says there, they fastened his head in the temple of Dagon, his body. And then they took his body and impaled it is what we read here on the wall of Bethshan. 
The, the city of Bashan was at the corner of the Jezreel Valley and the Jordan Valley on that map. And the Jordan Valley was like the main north-south route. The Jezreel Valley was like the main east-west route. So it would be like just putting, putting his body like hanging from the overpass at like where 84 and I-5 like come together. So that everybody could see the defeat of the king of Israel. And they put, his bo- they, they put his head in the temple of Dagon, which if you remember the story, Dagon was the god who, when, the ark was in, when they put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, that Dagon fell down and got beheaded. I don't know if you remember that story if you were here. Well, it's not just coincidence that they put Saul's head in the same temple. They're like, oh yeah, well you cut our guy's head off, we're cutting your guy's head off, and here it is. <laughs> Come worship Dagon. And they put uh, his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth. It was this huge religious victory. But the words I want us to focus on that I don't want us to miss, they sent, they sent the armor and his head throughout the land of the Philistines, verse 9, to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. You know, in the, uh, in the first century, there was a translation of the Bible um, called the Septuagint that was written around 200 B.C. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So we learn a lot about, like, Greek language because we have the Hebrew Old Testament and we also have this ancient, like, Greek, like, translation of it. So we can learn a lot about Greek language from comparing those two things. Well, interestingly enough, like, the, the word that's used to send the good news... In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, is the same word where we get our word, the gospel, from. What it literally reads is that, is that they were sending the gospel throughout the land of the Philistines and to their idols. The other thing that's really interesting is the word that they sent. I think some of your translations might read, they dispatched, which is probably a better word. It's the word where we get our word apostle from. The apostles were the ones that Jesus sent out to carry the good news of the gospel. Well, here the Philistines were apostling like Saul's head and his armor throughout the land so that they could proclaim the good news of the defeat of the armies of Israel. They had their own Philistine gospel because they had this military victory, they had a political victory, and they had this religious victory where the king of the God of Israel had been defeated. Now, the reason why I think that's important for us is that, for one, it it can teach us a couple things. One, it teaches us about the word, the gospel. Like most of us think of gospel as a religious word. Some of us think about it as as like a genre of music. Some of us think about it as, I don't know what else. What else do we think about it besides just this religious word in a genre? There's something else. Oh, it's the first four books. Sometimes we think about those as the Gospels of the New Testament. But the word gospel is actually a secular word. And what it means is is to proclaim like news that has momentous and far-reaching effects. It's usually used to, to, uh, or it's often used anyway, to describe a military victory. So in the ancient world, if you had a military victory like the Philistines had, you would send the message out that we had a victory, and you would be proclaiming the good news, the gospel of your victory. And here the Philistines are able to proclaim the victory over the God of Israel and over the armies of Israel, and that they had actually captured some of the land of Israel. The reason why I think that's important for us is I don't want you to forget that there's false gospels out there. 
I don't want you to forget that there's messages out there that will try to convince us that our God cannot deliver, that his promises really aren't true. Because think about it for a second. The tragedy of this thing that, that we just read about, if you remember the way Hannah started the book, the, um, when she, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, the, one of the characters, Hannah, writes a song. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4, she wrote that, where is it? I think I got it on the screen because I don't know where it is in my notes. Oh, here it is. She's writing this song, the bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. You know what? The bows didn't break for the Philistines that day. They drew them back taut. They launched their arrows. The arrows found their mark, and King Saul bled out on the ground. The bows weren't broken. In fact, the feeble, not only did the feeble not gird on strength, the mighty didn't gird on strength. In fact, in, in, first Sam, in Second Samuel chapter 1, David writes a song as he's lamenting Saul's death, and he repeats this phrase over and over again, Oh, how the mighty have fallen! As he laments Saul's death and Jonathan's death, like the bows found their mark, the mighty were taken down, verse 10 of Hannah's song, those who contend with the Lord will be shattered, you know what? They weren't shattered. The armies of Israel were shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. When Saul sought the Lord, the Lord was silent to him on that day. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king and he will exalt the horn of his anointed and Saul laid dead on the ground. And the Philistine gospel would say, like, our gods had victory. But the reality is this, is that there's going to be messages all over the place that say, you know, the people of Israel believed it when they, when they wanted a king so that they could be like the nations because they thought that being like the nations would somehow benefit them. Adam and Eve before them in the garden fell into the temptation when they didn't want God to rule over them because they, they doubted God's goodness and his grace towards them and his word towards them. And so they rejected his rule and kind of and fell under the curse and under the domain of like Satan himself. This message comes at us over and over and over again in all these different ways that God's not good to his promises. God's not like able to deliver. God's trying to hold something back from you. It's the Philistine gospel. And we, we can't believe it. Because if, if you've been with us in this story, you'll realize, like, this isn't the end of the story. The Bible doesn't end in 1 Samuel chapter 31. Praise God for that. In fact, in the, old, in the original Hebrew Bible, First and Second Samuel was a singular book. The story continues. We get glimmers of, of even hope in, in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Look, this is the last little bit of 1 Samuel 31, verse 11 through 13. Now when the inhabitants of Jabeth, Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan and came to Jabeth and burned them there and their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabeth and fasted seven days. 
So here you have this weird kind of like thing that the, that the author includes at the end, that there was the men of Jabesh Gilead, and, and they were probably parts of the army of Israel that had been routed, but when they saw the way Saul and his sons had been treated, and we find out that all of them had been impaled on the wall at Beth Shan, they had just had enough, and they're like, oh, we're going to go take that body down. And so they, they arose, they march all night, they get there in the dark, Somehow they, they're able to get into the city and get those bodies down from the wall. They bring them back to Jabesh Gilead. They burn the bodies and then they bury the bones under the tamarisk tree. Which is such an appropriate place for Saul to be buried because earlier in the book we had seen it was under the tamarisk tree where he like kind of ruled in all of his paranoid grandeur. And now he's buried there. But there's these men of Jabesh Gilead are really, really interesting for us because they're not just like this macho uh, like thing, like, oh, we should like teach this at our men's, next men's breakfast. That's not what this is about. The men of Jabesh Gilead um, appeared to us back in chapter, I believe it's chapter 10, uh, back in chapter, no, uh, yeah, chapter 10. And what happened, or maybe it was at the beginning of chapter 11, and what happened back in chapter 11 is in chapter 10, Saul had been officially like coronated as king. And, and when, once he had been coordinated as king, like the Nahash, who was the king of the Ammonites, had came up against the city of Jabesh Gilead. This is back in chapter 10 and 11. He came up against the city of Jabesh Gilead, and he, he besieged the city of Jabesh Gilead. And back then, the, the people of Israel were all these kind of like disjointed tribes. They had never unified under a king before. And it says that, that and what Nahash cut this deal with him, and he said, okay, this is the deal. We won't destroy you and your city as long as all of you men gouge out your right eye and become my like, servants forever. And the men of Jabez Gilead were like, mm, doesn't sound like the greatest deal. Um, so they, they, they negotiate like a seven-day ceasefire so that they can like think about whether or not they want to gouge out their eyes. During that time, Saul finds out about the, the siege, and you saw the verse. Listen to it. Go put it back up there. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. Like he became, like, listen to that for a second. The Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily. The men of Jabesh Gilead are a reminder for us of what a king who has God's Spirit upon him, who's anointed by the Spirit of God, is like. And the reason why they were so loyal to Saul is because Saul brought the armies of Israel down upon the Ammonites and rescued the men of Jabesh Gilead. And so what they're doing is they're pointing us back. Like their loyalty to Saul wasn't like King Saul that died on the hill. Their loyalty to King Saul was King Saul, the king that was anointed by the Spirit of God who rescued them. And so these guys like point us back to like a better time when there was a king that, that had God's Spirit on him. And they also point us forward because we know that that Spirit left Saul and, and came to reside upon David. But guess what? Death would one, time, one day take David too. In fact, death was ruling in Saul's life and death like ruled in David's life. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter, or 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's this promise to David that God makes in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. 
there's this promise. He says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers. That's a nice way of saying, you know what, David, when you die. When death overtakes you, like it overtakes all of us, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come from, forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever. Like there's going to be this king upon whom the spirit of God will come whose kingdom will never end. That's what we celebrate at Christmas is the fulfillment of all of those promises. That's where our hope comes is this hope of the promise of the coming Messiah that comes like David. But he's the one that ultimately fulfills all of the promises. In fact, Peter talks about it in in this passage in in Acts chapter 2, verses 29 through 32. He says this. He's preaching to the people of Israel. He says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He's like, go check it out. Right? You can go see his grave. David's still in the ground. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. And the last line is this. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. You know, death rules over this world. Death ruled that day in the people of, over the people of Israel, drove them from their homes, created this massive defeat, caused them probably to doubt the promises of God. But that wasn't the end of the story. In fact, like the nations as they rise up against like the promises and the goodness and the and the reign of God, like Psalm two says this about them. I, I think I have this on the screen too. Psalm chapter two. Yeah. Oh, nope, that's Acts 2. All right, I don't have it in there. This is not Jen's fault. I added a whole bunch of uh, passages this morning because I wasn't really sure where I was going. Um, That's why I have to look it up because it's not in my notes either. Oh, Psalm 2. You got it? Oh, there it is. The psalmist starts this way. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. It's an important phrase because it once applied to, to Saul. It once applied to David, but it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And this world's gospel is going to tell us, like, you know what? God's goodness, God's rule is not good. It, it, it's like fetters. It's like being tied with cords. Let's get rid of all of that, and let's just live like the Philistines. But the reality of the story is, is that the story doesn't end there. In fact, the very next phrase, I don't think I have it on there, is the Lord sits, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord will scoff at them. Death doesn't rule. Like, Jesus came up from the grave. He overthrew death forever. And that's why I think this is such a great Christmas passage because um, 
Jesus wasn't born into a world that's like a Hallmark special, right? There wasn't like a nice Christmas tree lot with two like beautiful people kissing as it starts to snow. None of that was going on. People of Israel were suffering under like Roman oppression. They were suffering under like the religious like burden of like Phariseeism. They, they had suffered under 400 years of silence from the Lord. Everything was dark, death, and, and the powers of this world seemed to rule over them. And it was into that mess that Jesus was born. That's why we have hope. Like Christmas isn't, isn't the Hallmark special. Christmas is about like the king coming to overthrow our greatest enemy of death forever. And death will no longer rule. I mean, and you, and you see this all through the pages of scriptures, like this hope of the people of God. Brian, you can come up, and I'll, I'll just close with a couple passages here. Isaiah chapter 40 says this. Comfort, O oh comfort, my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. Did you hear that? Like, the war is over. Your iniquity has been removed. Like, the punishment has been sufficient. Then he says this. A voice is calling, clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. You know who fulfilled that part of the prophecy? That was John the Baptist, who came before Jesus to, to make way the path for him. It goes on. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The glory of the Lord was revealed that morning or that night, I guess, in Bethlehem. Why? Because God said it would happen. Isaiah chapter 52. There's this interesting dialogue with God and himself. Now, therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause? Again, the Lord declares, those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. It's interesting. Like the the enemies of God are howling and blaspheming and proclaiming like this false gospel, the Philistine gospel. He goes on. Therefore, my people will know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one speaking. Here I am. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Guess what? That's that same word. The gospel. The good news of something momentous that has happened that changes everything. Who announces peace and brings good news of happiness. Who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. That's what Christmas is. That's the hope of Christmas. That 
that how beautiful are the feet of him who proclaim good news, the good news of Christ's victory over, over death and, the, and, and, and sin and our guilt, the good news of, of, that brings just shouts of joy, the restoration of Zion, the comfort to his people, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. So let's sing. Let's, why don't you stand? We should shout joyfully together because um, that's the hope of Christmas. Close. Let me just read um, Hannah's song from 1 Samuel chapter 2. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven. But she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And he will give strength to his king. And he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Like that's ultimately pointing us to Jesus. Jesus is the one who will thunder from the heavens. Jesus is the one who... who keeps the feet of the godly ones. Jesus is the one who gives strength to the king and he will exalt his God, like will exalt his power and his horn and he's worthy of all of our praise. Let's, let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for um, just the journey we've been in through in First Samuel. I mean, yeah, First Samuel and just ask that we would, we would live as those who trust in your goodness and in your rule and, and allow you to rule over us and not turn to the kings and the, and the philosophies and the values and the ethics of this world around us, but that we would live as your people, experiencing your good and gracious rule as we anticipate that day when you come again and, and restore all things. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.